2: Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host Ahmed Mazmi from Princeton University. Today I'm here to talk to Professor Thomas Metcalf, the author of *Imperial Connections: India and in the Indian Ocean Arena between 1860 to 1920* published by University of California Press in 2008. Thomas Metcalf is Emeritus uh, Sara Lott Professor of India Studies and Professor of History at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the author of Forging the Raj, Ideologies of the Raj, and Imperial Vision, uh, Indian art Architecture, and, the, and Britain's Raj, uh, with Barbara uh, Metcalf. Uh, also a Concise History of Modern India by discussing imperial connections we will explore how india itself became a nexus of imperial power that made possible british conquest control and governance across a wide arc of territory stretching from africa to eastern asia speaking from Connecting berkeley welcome uh, professor Metcalf to new books in the indian ocean world and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself that uh where did you grow up, uh, where you went to school, how you became interested in India and its colonial history, and any influential mentors that you had?
1: Yes, well, I um, grew up in upstate New York. Uh, my father was a corporate executive. and uh, But during the war, he was in the uh, in Second World War, he was in the Army, and I got interested in traveling and in seeing the various places he had been. And after the war, as the nineteen 19- 50s came on. I was a student, and I was just interested in history, and I was also interested in how America became such a predominant power in the world. It seemed that it was worth investigating how and why that had happened, and I uh, uh, turned to the study of the British, of Britain, because Britain had been the predominant power that the Americans had uh, had uh, displaced in in the 1940s. And I studied, at the same time, what I thought was one of the major features of British uh, predominance, namely the power of English liberal ideology. Uh, along with the Industrial Revolution, there was clearly also a, a political uh, revolution, uh, which was liberalism. And so I wrote my dissertation, uh, not my dissertation, my senior honors thesis in college on Gladstone, the famous British uh, liberal prime minister. And then I decided I should know more about Britain. So I went to Cambridge for some graduate work. And the professor that I, that I was assigned there, a man by the name of Ronald Robinson, uh, said to me, you should study not just Britain, but the British Empire. And that struck me as being a very good idea because part of what was made Britain the most powerful nation in the world was that it had lots of colonies. It had an empire, and they were quite upfront about that. But then I asked myself, but the British, I thought, were believed in liberalism, which was individual freedom uh, and, and so forth. And I said, how can you have an empire and be an advocate of liberalism and, and you know, freedom and, uh, and all of that? And uh, so my uh, advisor said, well, that's a very good dissertation project. And I said, I should study some part of the empire uh, in order to uh, learn how the empire was connected to liberalism. And that turned out to be India. That was the biggest piece. Why not? I should study study India. And so I, I spent my time writing a dissertation, which I attempted to find out how liberalism and empire could be connected together. Uh, and uh, that led to my long-term interest, uh, which is how far and in what ways uh, you can talk about a liberal empire at all. And the more I got into this study, the more it seemed to me that India was a major place, not only for colonial rule, uh, but also for uh, expressing ideas of liberalism and empire. Uh, you can't run a big empire on one hand and pro- proclaim liberalism on the other. Uh, so how did they make the two work together? Well, I found there was a very important shift about the middle of the 19th century, uh, provoked by such the events as the Indian Sepoy Uprising, and then also by an uprising in Jamaica a few, few years later. And so I f- focused upon this transition, uh, And I would say, quite frankly, that the earlier period, the period of John Stuart Mill and Macaulay, was a period in which liberalism justified itself by saying that we are going to transform India uh, and make it a major uh, free country. We have to work at it. It's going to be necessary for us to do it. And uh, uh, Mill even made up a list of, of colonies which he thought should be transformed, India being at the top of the list. Then in 18, during the 1850s, there was this uprising, which I said the Sepoy Mutiny is called, and also others in Jamaica, and that disillusioned liberals. Now, uh, people have said uh, the liberals were were hypocrites to begin with. They really always thought empire needed justification, and there was a hypocritic uh, style of justification. Uh, for myself, I thought these people, Macaulay and Mill and such people, were. Were honest, that is to say, that they 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 believe what they said they were doing. But after the revolt, uh, disillusionment set in, even amongst liberals, and so you get a late nineteenth-century liberalism in which the empire was seen as a good thing, not because it could transform people into Englishmen, but because they were they needed stern. Uh, control, that they were inferior, they had not the capacity to to become like the English, and so therefore the uh, the English could say, well, we have liberalism at home, but in in a place like India, you need an authoritarian style of liberalism uh, in which you rule people uh, harshly. And most of my career has been uh, investigating aspects of that late-century illiberal liberalism uh, in the empire through various media i've studied british colonial architecture and uh, uh, political ideology more generally people like james fitz james stephen and uh, and so let's say that is where my career has primarily been Uh, and india has always been the focus of it Uh, for a time and i was i was during the 1970s for instance uh, economic development and uh, uh, close-to-the-ground studies of cl- uh, peoples was predominant, and during that era, I worked on the impact of empire on a particular group of Indians, uh, landlords in, in, in the north. But I eventually drifted back to imperial uh, ideologies and the way the British implemented or thought about or used these ideologies uh, in India. Now that sort of brings me up to the point which we start uh looking thinking about this book
2: mm-hmm.
1: A lot of um things sort of came together for one thing, quite personally, I was tired of just going to India and I wanted to see other places. secondly, I knew because I had often been to these places that the Indians were all around the Indian Ocean era and even of course in the Caribbean as indentured laborers and other and other uh, jobs, uh, replacing slavery. Uh, There was one famous book which said that indentured laboring was simply slavery in a new way. And again, I I wanted to find out how that worked and what that meant. Uh, I remember the day I was in the city of Madras and saw the architecture of the Raj. I said, "This, this interests me and nobody's ever done any research on it. And so that like I said, the architecture book was quite separate, but now this book on the imperial connections pulled together a number of things which were beginning to become uh, interesting to me. One was the uh, larger question of Indian Ocean or oceanic studies, more generally world history, comparative history. I thought I it would be useful to set uh, the Raj, which was always my major area of interest in that larger connection. And also, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, also, it seemed that India played a role, and this was, became somewhat a controversial part of my work, a role in this Raj that was not just a colony dangling uh, on the end of a string going back to London. It seemed to me that India was such a central player that one even might call it a sub-imperial enterprise of its own. In other words, the British who went out to India did not settle there permanently, but they adopted a a point of view which uh, often involved that the Indian government, the Indian people, and the Indian economy was just the most central player determining what happened in the Indian Ocean. Uh, and if you wanted to look at the larger context of the Indian Ocean, you had to look at India as the central player uh, in this in this whole enterprise, because uh, it was it was big. It was in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It was logically a, a major player. So I wanted to see what role India played as a what I would call a sub-imperial player. Now, this involved a number of different categories which one can look at. Uh, as we go along, uh, but I want I, I should think that want to say the one element, which was always very delicate and very tricky, was to ask to what extent were Indians active players in the sub-imperial enterprise? And that's a delicate question, because often people would think of them as colonial subjects. And, and that was it. And, you know, you come to Gandhi and you get Indian independence. But Gandhi also Gandhi also went to South Africa. Gandhi also was a player in this game, and as an active participant, not just as a mobilizer of anti-imperial opinion. And and studying Gandhi in South Africa also, I think, helped to make me think about just what's going on here. And so I set out to develop and study the various groups of Indians who participated in this larger Enterprise, which I would call the sub-imperialism of India in the Indian Ocean, and that led me into. I, in this book, I have chapters on uh, the uh, indentured laborers in the in, in the in the cane fields. That was a very tricky question because these people often were very poor. They were often subject to coercion on the plantation, which was not that different from what you would see in a um, in a slave plantation. And yet they signed up, they went, quote unquote, out of free choice. And unlike slaves, unlike slaves, they had a term at the end of which they were free to do what they wished. And so uh I, I try to point out that however they were coerced in the initial uh, era, they did have freedom of choice at the end of the expiry of their of their contracts. And lots of people also went to India uh, for other reasons. I'm sorry, went to Africa or Southeast Asia for other reasons. And so one of the things i tried to do in this book is to look at the institutions which facilitated making India a central player, and also at the role the Indians played in this larger enterprise. So maybe I'll stop there and you can move on to other questions if you'd like.
2: Yes. Thank thank you for starting talking about the rich book um, and, and talking about the role of India. So I would like to ask you and retract to think about um, how does your book fit into the larger historiography of India? What does the Indian ocean means for South Asianist?
1: Well, um, uh, it meant a lot. It meant a lot uh, in the period of what I call the early modern era, from say 1500 to 1800. In those years, you see, uh, you know, you see uh, uh, the conquest of Cl- Clive, you see the trading companies, and the Indian Ocean was obviously central to the, end of the opium trade to China. The Indian Ocean was very central to those, uh, to those years, and the contest between Britain and France. And after the Indian Ocean and the entire area was put under British rule, uh, people didn't think so much about India in the Indian Ocean. They thought about land tenure. They thought about peasants. They they thought about, uh, you know, on land, the British ruled hundreds of millions of people. I mean, who cared what, what happened in the Indian Ocean? The rattles were, were finished. Uh, the trade was changed in nature from... Commodities uh, (laughs) like opium and and whatnot to simple things like uh, cotton textiles. So uh, it seemed to me that the time had come to think about India in the Indian Ocean. And of course, I was not the only person. A number of volumes were written looking at this larger question, not just from the point of view of the economic history of the earlier period, which uh, uh, there are a lot of famous books written on that period but in the end, of course, uh, in in the later period.
2: And and your book really uh, fills a lacuna when it comes to uh, the more recent history of the Indian Ocean. Um, I would like to ask you about writing the book itself. What was the research process like uh, and the methodologies you've used in writing it?
1: Well, um, the research methodology was classic, academic history, if you will. I went to the archives and read the documents that I could get my hands on. Uh, I spent a lot of time in, in New Delhi in the Indian National Archives, which I've always enjoyed and was very happy in, actually. And I spent a good bit of time in, in England, also working both in the Colonial Office Records, which are at Q in the British National Archives, and the India Records, which are in the India Office collection in the British uh, library. And I think that says something itself. India was, in the eyes of researchers, separated from the colonial empire. It was all the records were kept totally different. There was no, you couldn't find any reference to colonial office records in, in the British Library. I know I've looked. And so I went back and forth to these archives. I also spent uh, a couple of months in South Africa because uh, I wanted to see how the Recruitment of Indian laborers for the sugar plantations worked. I mean, I, there's one thing to talk about a new system of slavery, as one author did. It was another thing to find out what was it like, how did it work. I wanted to get the institutional side of these things, and so at Peter Maritzburg, the archives of the Indian of the then apartheid state, actually, uh, province of, of Natal. And I also, as I say, I enjoyed going traveling around. I could; it was an excuse to go to the in Singapore and, and such like places. So, um, uh, anyway, and then I then I sat down and connected it. I decided I couldn't write a narrative history; it had to be a study of topics because uh, mm-hmm. I I didn't want to go. Well, they did this this year, and the next year that happened. That would confuse people. So I said, "Look, I'd want to write about uh, about how the." How the sugar uh, recruitment process worked. I wanted to work, look at how the military recruitment process worked, and then to assess in each of those cases something about well, let's say the role and and uh, of Indians. I didn't do much interviewing. Uh, uh, I had one amusing interview story though, because many of six uh, the Turban Punjabi six were very important in the building of the of the railroad and in general in east africa so um when they six retired they say almost never did they go back to india when the six retired uh, they were given little farm plots and then after independence of kenya the india the kenyan government wanted to get rid of these indians and so a lot of them were forced out they went to england in many cases but a few were left and so once i traveled out into the remote interior of kenya to talk to the and the descendant of a sick Indian farmer. But interviewing is not really practical in in this kind of a situation.
2: Mm -hmm. And and you draw beautifully from the archives to to write about vast regions uh, on large scales. Um, So if you were to think about India as a sub-imperial center, uh, in, in your assessment, what analytical possibilities does that pose for writing imperial history as generated from India rather than the metropole?
1: Well, uh, it's hard to know exactly how to respond to that. I mean, uh, you, have to look at the, uh, you have to look at what the Indians were doing in terms of the empire. And I think uh, that was often been inadequately assessed. And I mentioned Gandhi a few minutes ago, but Gandhi is a classic case of someone who couldn't get a, a legal employment in Bombay after he finished his training in Britain. Uh, and he went so he went to South Africa, uh, where he worked as a lawyer for Indian merchants, and then from there got involved in, uh, in, in, um, in political activities. And it's interesting to, to say two things. One is that Gandhi and many of the people, educated Indians of his day, were imperialists avowedly. They thought the British Empire was a good thing. It enabled them to travel and to make money. And it gave them connections, uh, which they utilized, particularly the merchant classes, uh, in addition to, and quite apart from the, uh, uh, the uh, sugar cane of indentured laborers, lots of them went because they saw the opportunities of the empire. I think one of the things you have to look at uh, is to see how the, how empire could make opportunities for people. And you find that quite, quite I mean, the Indians built the, Uh, the kenya the railroads in kenya indians became merchants everywhere uh, and uh, often uh, educated elites who would travel to various parts of the empire so uh, in the process of course they generated hostility not just uh, from the local people and you know eventually as i say the 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 collapse of this whole system came about in part with the growth of indian nationalism indians became focused on their own freedom struggle, Gandhi came back to India, but also they were uh, looked upon with substantial hostility by all the countries where they had been trading, where they had been doing uh, uh, what uh, useful jobs because they saw, the local people saw, uh, the Indians taking uh, opportunities which should rightfully. nationalism nationalism, bluntly speaking, uh, came and pushed Indians out in very, mo- most of Africa, Uh, and Southeast Asia as well. Those are the two regions where the... So an Indian... Look at at the Indian Ocean from the point of view. You have to think about the empire. You have to think about nationalism. And you also have to think about trade. There was trade all the time going on, even uh, after the uh, demise of the famous trading companies.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS?
2: the history of all of these colonies from East Asia to Africa, you've deployed the conceptual framework of a horizontal web. So can you explain to us what you mean by that, and how did that help you to narrate this history?
1: Well, it's not a very complicated uh, idea. The idea is that the colonies were connected to each other uh, through trading, administrative Uh, migratory movements they were not just connected each one separately uh, to to Britain and uh, I mean that's where I mentioned the I mentioned the archives being not connected uh, for India and for the colonies that's exactly what I was trying to argue against uh, that there were connections Um, at one point I make it in the book I make a sort of a joke I say well it was like a spider web Uh, and then I say, "Well." Is India the spider at the middle of the web? Yes. But there was another bigger spider on the edges, of course, looking in, uh, namely Britain. So (laughs) I wouldn't want to say the web was completely self-contained. It was an imperial structure. Uh, Britain did have the final say. And um, it's important not to forget that, obviously. Mm
2: -hmm. So you've mentioned earlier uh, some remarks about the historiography of South Asia, so I would like to ask you how does your book reassess the historiography of the Indian Ocean during the colonial era beyond the common understanding of it as a British lake in the second half of the 19th century.
1: Well that's a that's a delicate question. Uh, I don't know that I can really answer that except to say that there were lots of different ways in which it interjected itself in which uh, contemporary historiography would be would be involved with this this subject. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I really can't answer that question, Vivian, in any detail.
2: Uh, I think the book makes very uh, important contributions in thinking about how not just the British were traversing this ocean and generating history, but also people coming from the region of South Asia and being dispersed across this vast space are also taking part uh, in, in the so-called British Lake which really shows it as not merely British, right? Uh, yes,
1: that, that's my point, is that people, the Asians, uh, uh, particularly the Indians, now you can say, well, what about China? The Chinese were also very much involved as traders and as and uh, tin miners in Malaya and whatnot. But China was never part of the empire. Hong Kong didn't really have much of an effect on the larger Chinese situation. Uh, so we, if you think about Asians, i.e., that is to say, East uh, you get a very different perspective than if you think about uh, Indians. The East Asians were not functioning within uh, the, stru- the structures of the empire to quite the same extent. They went to Indonesia, the Philippines, other people's empires. Uh, and uh, But the, I think a lot of the same things happened, that they provided opportunities for development and growth of uh, commercial agriculture above all else, and ultimately they became looked upon with disfavor, with hostility, as nationalist movements grew up in Burma, Indonesia, uh, uh, and Philippines, and so forth.
2: So in thinking about those Asians, um, you use the concept of uh, colonized colonizers. So how did you conceptualize that, and how did you uh, think of the positionality of those people in the making of the empire in Asia and Africa?
1: Well, I tried not to make it... uh, a simple-minded statement. I mean, people talk about oppressed colonial subjects, and there are plenty of oppressed colonial subjects. And uh, others, the British themselves, talk about all the wonderful opportunities that we make available to our people, and, and the way in which they can uh, become educated and, and undertake uh, business. And I guess what I, I what I tried to do was a case a series of case studies. I tried to avoid calling. Uh, uh, the, the indentured system, uh, as Hugh Tinker had done, quote, a new system of slavery. No, I don't think it was a new system of slavery, but it wasn't exactly an ideal situation either. So I tried, in each chapter, as I said, takes up a different group and tries to assess that, that group's fate, if you will. I, I mean, it's hard to talk about groups. Indians, lots of them, hundreds of millions of them, lots of them went overseas for all kinds of reasons. Uh, and... And I think some critics have tried to make me an apologist of the empire, but I'm trying not to do that. I was trying always, at every point, to see to what extent it offered advantages and and disadvantages to those who participated in it. And I guess I'm a bit more of an optimist than some people in that regard, but uh, please don't call me an apologist.
2: No, definitely. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, In fact, you problematize a lot of these, what seems to be straightforward connections between the colonized and the colonizers. Um, So the book closes in 1920s. Uh, I'd like to ask you, why do you regard the 1920s as a rupture in the web of imperial connections that focused on India?
1: Uh, Well, several things were happening. Um, There was the First World War, though that did not make much uh, of a a difference in in uh, in, in in the empire, though there were uh, some particular cases which alarmed the British to the thought that maybe these Indians were not as participants in the colonizing enterprise as they once were. For instance, a group of six, and they were very regarded as reliable, as reliable members of the Indian Army, and the Indian Army is very important in this whole enterprise. There was there was a, a mutiny, an uprising of up six in Singapore in 1915. And that I think began to shake British confidence in using such people. I mean, you have to bear in mind the British always were in charge. They always had to decide, well, it's this something we want to encourage, or do we not want to encourage it? And so uh, I think that the growth of, of in nationalism in India and in these colonial territories was critical. I mean, the growth of Indian nationalism is quite fascinating in one case, which is the question of the indentured labor. The British had always felt the indentured labor was good. It, it allowed Indians opportunities, uh, you know, and they stayed on and and whatnot. But increasingly, stories of, of really oppression and extortion, and particularly uh, sexual uh, harassment, on these plantations drifted back to India and people like Gandhi and others began to say, no, we don't want this. We cannot have our subjects treated like this. They, they're they Indians and they should not be uh, uh, subject to the kind of exploitation that happened on these plantations. And so, uh, and uh, then the British eventually began to agree with them uh, and say, well, maybe we could get rid of this altogether. It became apparent, for instance, that. You didn't need these. You didn't need Indians on these plantations anymore because it was possible, of by the 1910s and so sort thereabouts, to get local workers. I mean, you see the beginnings of the apartheid system in South Africa. You put the South African blacks to work on these uh, on these sugar plantations. You don't need the Indians anymore. So why give and you antagonize, uh, create antagonism for yourself? The British did by uh, encouraging these uh, these Indians to be there. So you see uh, the first World War era is important, I think, insofar as you talk about the growth both of Indian nationalism and colonial nationalism and the British attempt to adjust uh to uh, to, to these changes. Now it doesn't nothing happens right away. Uh, it takes a while, uh, but then you have the Great Depression, which increases the sense of nationalism in these colonial territories and even England itself. And then you have the Second World War, and there you have that traumatic, climactic uh, occasion uh, in which the uh, British in Burma abandoned uh, the, the millions, literally, of Indians that had encouraged to come there. Uh, the British took themselves back to India, where they would not be uh, threatened by the Japanese, and left their Indians, who were their employees, their subordinates, uh, Defend for themselves and and, uh, and to escape or to, be, uh, uh, or to be massacred by the Japanese, or in some cases, <laughs> and to join the Japanese as well. So that was the coup de grace of the system, but it, it took a while to fade away, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, the book, since its publication in 2008, have become, I would say, an innocent classic. It has been engaged by hundreds of scholars, and... Uh, that made me think if you had any engagement with these uh, uh, citations, if you if you revisited some of the uh, ideas you advanced in this book.
1: Um, well, first of all, I retired from active teaching so that I didn't have graduate students working in this field. Uh, secondly, this book participated in what I call a major historiographical trend of the end of the... Last century, that what is called the new imperial history, scholars had studied empire as though it were some special thing, and they studied Britain as though it were some special thing also, uh, and the two didn't meet. Uh, a famous historian of uh, British uh, labor, uh, E.P. Thompson, was born in India. He was uh, he was uh, he was a scion of the British classes in India, but he refused to see it. And then finally, and as I say, my earlier work, I think. Uh, 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 ideologies of the Rod in particular became uh, representative of, of a larger historiographical trend in the 1990s called the new imperial history and lots of other people including uh, I might say several of my own students, Dane St. Kennedy among them most notably and others, uh, became interested in making imperial history part of British history and this uh, became an important new historiographical trend I say, which I think really overwhelmed traditional British history all during the 1990s. In fact, people would say, I mean, I sort of say, well, the year I taught the British Empire in the same classroom as the British historian, a well-known, excellent historian, Thomas Leclerc, and I got more students than him. Then I realized that this was something that mattered to people, empire mattered to and the American invasion of Iraq in 2003 also increased interest in this whole field. And that lasted, I think, until the last few years and finally has now been pushed aside by related but somewhat different uh, interests in quote called global history, comparative history, uh, and, and, and so forth. I didn't want to talk about comparative history and global history because I felt I had all I could deal with. Uh, in talking about the British Empire. But now people are interested in larger issues and, of course, quite different issues uh, 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 of all sorts. And since, the, uh, since then, I've been reading a bit in American history, and it's interesting to see how American history has accommodated uh, the growth of, of these kinds of concerns.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for writing this book. This book has been really helpful for me as a graduate student, and it's amazing how you brought this vast geography in one coherent narrative. Um, and I would like the listeners to uh, listen to some of the passages from the book, if you would like to read perhaps the last paragraph of the book.
1: I'll read the last paragraph. of. Let me read you one other paragraph, if I might, which is just about uh, 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 the, uh, the British, uh, the kinds of people who would come to India in, and be involved in this, I'm sorry. Um, the, you find that uh, one of the things about the Empire is it attracted all kinds of strange, offbeat uh, British uh, people who were ill at ease or uncomfortable. Who You think of Lawrence of Arabia? yeah, some of these were very famous. Others were hardly anybody. Now, I'd just like to read a paragraph about um, one of the people who's very important for me here. Tristram Charles Sawyer Speedy, 1836-1910. Born in Merritt, son of James Speedy, a lieutenant in the 3rd Regiment of Foot, Tristram Speedy was commissioned into the Indian Army in 1854, first posted in Merritt and then in Peshawar. But he resigned his commission, took up a life of wandering adventurers, as I say here. We took him first to the court of King Theodore of Abyssinia, where he served a time as British vice-consul in Eritrea, then to New Zealand, where he enlisted in the local militia that were fighting the Maori, and ultimately back to Abyssinia in 1868, where Lord Napier summoned him to act as interpreter and advisor for the campaign that was to terminate in the siege of the forest of Magala and the death of King Theophor. After the Magdala campaign, Speedy took charge of the orphaned infant of the king, whom he brought with him to England, and subsequently to India, where Speedy secured the post, of distant superintendent of police in Sitapur. Uh, in After two years in India, Speedy moved on to the Straits, where in 1872, he took up the position of superintendent of police in Penang. He resigned a year later to take up service with the Mantri of La Root, who was the native prince. A Month later, he was on his way to Lahore to recruit troops for the Mantri of La Root. And I, that, I think, gives you a sense of the sort of wandering character. I mean, this is all done in the Indian Ocean. He never went to England. He never had anything to do with England. He worked in this arena, stretching from Malaya to Abyssinia, and of course, with recruiting of Indian troops, recruiting of Indian troops, uh, uh, absolutely central. Let me, can, let me can, can, uh, read the, the last paragraph, which I alluded to already. The fall of Singapore and Burma to the Japanese in 1942 delivered the final blow. As one devastated officer who joined Bose's Indian National Army, fighting with the Japanese against the British. Uh, As one devastated officer who joined the Indian National Army, quote, I was brought up to see India through the eyes of the British officer. At the back of my mind was the traditional urge of loyalty to the king. That's the sub-imperial enthusiasm which I've talked about. But, but I say, but no longer. With the surrender of the supposedly impregnable fort of Singapore, the entire legitimacy of the Asian Empire had been shaken. Singapore's fall was followed within months by the collapse of British authority in India, sorry, in Burma. and the subsequent exodus, hundreds of thousands of Indians, fleeing in chaotic disarray with little or no support from the British colonial government. And leaving thousands of dead behind them, the Indians trekked back to Assam through the mud of Burma's jungle clad hills. Weakened by disease and starvation, they straggled into a country little equipped to receive them and on the verge of a massive famine in 1943. In Burma, the Indian community had depended for its security on that of the British colonial regime. Now its members find themselves betrayed and vulnerable across Southeast Asia. British and Indian had come, as one British officer told his Indian subaltern, in Singapore, the party of our way. If, if the empire had abandoned them, the Indians who had served and prospered under it had no choice but to seek their own destiny. And so, I mean, it's important to bear in mind that there was a lot of this sort of, what I call sub-imperialism or uh, colonizing enthusiasms among the, uh, among the Indians. But they could not ever rely upon the British permanently and securely and of course with that the empire's final bell was tolled.
2: thank you for reading these passages um i've enjoyed the, reading the book and i'm sure many of our listeners would enjoy the book as well uh, we've taken a lot a lot of your time um and before um uh, Uh, I I close. Um, I would like to ask you, since your retirement, you have been reading and thinking about American imperialism, as you've alluded to. Can you share with us some of your insights on how it compares with the British? Uh, I know you've been thinking about the Philippines to reflect on the nature of colonialism and larger ties to racism and power. So if you can talk about these connections.
1: Okay, yeah. I mean... I might say first a word about the, uh, the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. That stimulated a lot of interest in American imperialism. I, of course, was interested because I was interested in imperialism already. But suddenly, American empire seemed less something vague and in the past, and very much alive and in the present. And uh, and of course, we are still stuck in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, even with uh, with under Trump, the question of the out or in or are our, our questions which, which are very, very, very important today. Despite the pandemic and everything, our American foreign engagement remains. That issue, and there are elements of imperialism in it. But let me say a word, as, as you asked, about the Philippines. And that's a separate case, uh, because 100 years before, that is to say, in 1898, the United States went to war with Spain. Uh, they, uh, I won't do the details of the war, they conquered Cuba, Puerto Rico, uh, and, uh, and the Philippines, which were Spanish colonies. And the Americans were suddenly, had, to, had come face to face with a conundrum, which I described before, of how do you fit together liberalism and empire? How, you, how can you make it work? Uh, And there were various ways in which the Americans tried to make work. And I wrote one article, which I attempted to try to show how and in what ways they took the British Empire as a model. But I think the important thing to start with is to say that the Americans did not want to take the British Empire as a model. They did not want to be seen. They had a hard time seeing themselves as an imperial power. It was just not... I mean, what, what is it then they can't take it all the west from the Indians? I mean, this is a kind of a, a, an act of self-deception with which Americans have been engaged for, for a century and more. It's like nowadays we're talking about racism it's embedded in American culture. Well, I think imperialism also is embedded in American culture and part of the same thing as racism at some level. But Americans really, really, really didn't want to, uh, uh, to accept And this had several consequences. One of which was that those who did want to accept it, of whom the most important was Theodore Roosevelt, uh, uh, it was a um, difficult task to convince his fellows that we should actually rule the Philippines like as as an imperial uh, society. Uh, For one thing, one of the things that the British, the Americans did was to conquer certain strategies of rule in the building, which I won't go into in detail. But And they pulled out a little hill station. The British always liked to have hill stations for rehabilitation. Uh, but they never set up a proper quality of service. They were always very much afraid of being seen as an imperial power. And the result was that the classic... Uh, colonial era era of the Americans in the Philippines was hardly a decade or more. Uh, By the time Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic Party was very much anti-imperial. William Jennings Bryant had run two election campaigns against theodore Roosevelt, both of which he lost. So there was imperial sentiment in the United States at that time. But increasingly, they didn't want to avow it. They didn't want to admit it. And so the Americans did put their liberalism into practice, if you will, a bit more and a bit sooner uh, than the British. The British ruled India for a hundred years before there was ever any appreciable Indian political uh, uh, voice in the legislature. In the American case, once Woodrow Wilson came in, this was only 15 years after they conquered uh, Philippines' first place, uh, they began to hand over power to elite uh, Filipinos to be sure. And so you can see that American imperialism was always something that made Americans unhappy if it were avowed. and you can say the same thing about racism if you want, but it was there, and it wasn't going to go away, and uh, it had to be hidden. And of course, if you hid it, you did allow the, quote, colonial subjects like the Filipinos, a lot more autonomy until they eventually threw the Americans out. But that was not until the 1970s. That was a long time. What the that the U.S. continued behind the scenes to uh, to uh, act as an imperial power, and it, even in the early days, people were not felt this was made it made them uncomfortable. I mean, it, in Manila, and I think in 1903, I read the report of somebody who said that the the colonial government had. Read uh, the Fourth of July Proclamation, and this person who was writing this note said, "To read the Fourth of July Proclamation to Filipinos, uh, considering the situation where we are in, seemed a little bit odd. It was odd, but it was something the U.S. was determined not to acknowledge. I think I've become a little bit more leftist, if you will, in that uh, in this whole thing as I've looked closer at uh, since the invasion of Iraq and." And also thought about some of the parallels um, with, the, uh, with the current uh, concerns about yeah. racism. I mean, there's a talk of taking down a Theodore Roosevelt statue. Uh, the statue business is is an interesting commentary on empire. And I would like to see more people thinking about it instead of just putting statues, uh, dumping them into the river or whatever, because they are very, very telling reminders of a larger not just slavery, but of a larger imperial enterprise. In Britain, of course, uh, the statue of a, of a slave trader was dumped into the river. Uh, I'm not in favor of that, but I am in favor of thinking about your history in the lecture context.
2: That's very useful. Thank you for sharing these insights with us today. And thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored Imperial Connections, India, in the Indian Ocean Arena, 1860 to 1920, published by University of California Press in 2008. This is your host, Ahmed al Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.